0: Do they live by film a film discussion podcast focused on the criterion channel and beyond my name is adam lundy and i am joined as always by chris haskell and zach bryant how are you doing today guys hello
1: hey how's it going
0: how are you guys doing today very going going good going well oh man yeah i'm doing great
2: no
1: covid yet awesome
0: that's what <laughs> we like to see zach or adam, have you all been um, uh, uh gotten the vaccine yet i'm on the list gosh no I was only telling Zach before we started recording, we are way behind on, I probably won't see a vaccine till the end of the summer if I'm lucky. Okay. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, well, we got a bit of a bumper episode in store for you guys today. We have three movies to talk about rather than our usual two, as well as a nice little um, special feature about halfway through the podcast. Um, so definitely keep an eye out for that. Uh, we're just going to jump straight in. So the first film we're talking about today is a Chinese film from... Uh, the director's name is, I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's uh, Zhang Qixia. Uh, it's a Chinese director. And the film is called Xiaowu. Uh English title is called Pickpocket from 1998. Just to give you a sort of brief synopsis on this from IMDb, uh, a small-town pickpocket whose friends have moved on to higher trades finds himself bitter and unable to adapt. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty straightforward rundown of what this film is. Um, any of you guys want to sort of pick up on any sort of early points on this?
2: Uh, if, you know, one thing that uh, I just thought would be maybe some interesting historical context on Chris here uh, that ties directly into this movie. So in 1998, I was, there was a, a political uh, revolution in Indonesia I was living, and we actually had to evacuate. So we had three hours to leave our house, pick what we needed, and like, get out because they were targeting Americans. And we were sitting in Singapore uh, in the summertime, and we were watching on TV this transition from uh, Hong Kong from uh, the British to the Chinese. So this, you know, it's interesting coming back, watching this now in 2021, It just I brought back this flood of memories. And it was really I loved seeing that perspective of everything that was going on in 1998 from the perspective of kind of a smaller town in, in you know, more rural China. Um, so that was uh, anyway, it's just a little context of, of, you know, for for me as I was watching this movie, it was it was a bit personal and kind of brought back some some fun memories about that time.
1: I'm gonna sound like such an asshole during my part of the review now. <laughs> oh, uh,
2: that was the intent, Zach. I'm trying. To, oh, that's good, good, What I try to do. So, mission <laughs> two minutes out of the gate. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'll, we can talk more about the film itself. I just wanted to, you know, kind of. I, I, anyways, this film was
0: a bit that's personal. Really cool though.
1: I, I had that's uh, brings a lot of interesting uh, perspective to it.
0: Yeah I think this film obviously has a lot of very heavy historical context it's kind of like like I, I compared this in in my written review I compared it to like the Czech New Wave um, in terms of just in terms of like what I was trying to say politically while also just having the characters kind of do very little and um, it, it really reminded me of that and I suppose having historical context for this kind of film would probably give it an extra layer but like i i knew very little of the historical context and i and i adored this film i I loved everything about it um yeah like like i said i i kind of love films that have a kind of easygoing nature but are still trying to say something you know that's just not too in your face like essentially this film that the main character in it um is like it's kind of just one of these guys that just never really grew up and um, he's sort of stuck living in you know his, his teenage years where he used to just be a pickpocket and josh around with his friends and they've all kind of grown up and moved on and they're trying to become legit businessmen even if some of them are still a little bit skeevy they're, they're trying to do it like a bit more legit than he is and that sort of focus on the sort of stunted growth and how this character will essentially be thrown out by the new regime because he refuses to work within that regime really sort of speaks to how China was developing around that time. And, you know, around, um, was it, was it Mao? I can't remember the name of the, maybe not Mao, um, whatever the, whatever the name of the, the leader of china at that time i'm pretty pretty sure it was mao but i, I couldn't be 100% but we, yeah during that sort of transitional period in chinese history when things were going you know a bit more like they are today with a stricter regime um this sort of character was sort of almost left behind by it yeah
2: the the presidency yeah um the president
0: was mao you're right at that time or let's
2: see yeah uh, no, it was Zhang uh, Zemin. That's right. At that time, it was Jiang Zemin. Okay. Um, anyways, but yeah, um, there was there was a lot going on. But I think you know that just just one interesting thing to kind of touch on here was this idea of globalization, right? So there was uh, some American product placement uh, yeah. in in the film. I think Marlboro cigarettes was the big one that they kind of. Uh, we're kind of talking about getting excited about trying, and they're willing to pay more for it because it was this American cigarette. Even though we all know that Marlboro is like—I think one of the guys even in the film even said it, it's like this is the cheapest thing in the in the U.S. Um, but it was—you know—it's interesting, like this perception that because something's from America or the you know England or Ireland, like and it's in China now, all of a sudden it's super exciting, right? Because this has been a relatively closed-off country, so it's got a little bit of that romanticism kind of tied to it. Um, well, it's like but, uh,
1: also in that part about the uh, when they're trying somebody's trying to uh, buy the radio, yes. and they're, they're talking about it was built there. And I was like, from perspective of my life, I've always heard don't buy things that were made in China. But, you know, it was kind of a funny little thing to tie that in as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I yeah. think the the radio as well ties into um, the, the role that media plays, you know, not just obviously in modern life as well and also in the in the film. Like I don't really recall. I think you watched it more recently than I did, Zach. I don't really recall there being like a traditional soundtrack to the film. Pretty much all like the music and the sounds you hear are from within the film's realm. So yeah, there's
1: a word for that, and I really can't remember it's, it's, it. It's sort of the diya. D- D- Oh man, when all whenever all the sounds are just from there. There's no external score. I can't think of the word for it now. Yeah, yeah I don't and, remember there being a score at all.
0: Yeah, maybe during the credits or something there was, but yeah, pretty much all of the music you hear with during the actual main plot is all from within the film. Whether it's like the karaoke bar or even just sort of flashes you hear when the characters walking through places, you'll you'll hear like things from TV or from radios and stuff like that. And this sort of idea that that media is sort of surrounding you and you can't really escape. The media even though he's in this sort of small rundown village even there they're being constantly bombarded by you know radio tv movies music there, there's no real escape from it and that sort of idea of commercialism and especially in this era in the 90s where things were becoming so much more commercialized and you know especially especially tv and radio and things like that which were before that were seen more of a like a novelty or something that you know you can get by without whereas in the 90s and then the turn into the 2000s it pretty much became something you couldn't really live without you couldn't live without tv or radio or hearing sounds constantly wherever you are and, and this film really represents that well and it, it kind of reminded me of one car wine a bit especially chunking express which was made a few years prior to this because you know like in like in chunking express music is everywhere and it's always music from within the within the film's world you know like california dreaming like constantly playing for example in the in the second story yeah Um. see I, I just found this film was trying to say a, a, a ton without actually doing a lot within the actual action of the film and I love that I love a film that says a lot without doing a lot uh, I think that's the best kind of film if you're trying to stuff too much stuff in and have your character do too many things just to try and get a point across I think you've missed the point if you have a film like this which is so easy going and so easy to watch while also making really great points about the world, I think you have a knockout of a film.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You you know, my memory of this is that he was not a very good pickpocket, is it? it, He got,
0: well, well, obviously he got caught towards the end, but I'm trying to recall if he got caught at the start as well.
2: I was more thinking, okay, so when he got caught and he was in the police station, it just sounded to me like he'd been caught many times before, right?
1: Yeah, he was kind of a regular there. and But now that everything's kind of changing on the crackdown of criminals, it was a bigger deal than it was every yeah. other time.
2: Yeah. And if so if that's true, then I think it's interesting of, of what uh, director Jean Key, I guess, was saying was that, like, you know, this idea of kind of being stuck when the world is moving on, like people are willing to be stuck even if they're not good at the thing that they're being stuck in.
0: Really? Yeah, it's just that, just that unwillingness to grow or change. It kind of the status quo. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a, a Vittoloni in that sense as well. Yeah, um, the way the guys in that film just sort of they're they're just happy, just plodding along. Well, the majority of them, obviously there's that one guy who wants to move on, but the majority of the characters in the, in Vitaloni are happy enough just sort of plodding along with their easy existence in their small town and and the the character of, of xiao Wu was kind of similar in that regard like he, he has no real interest in in moving on like he's even happy to sort of lose his friends and lose his family just because he just he just wants to keep doing what he knows i
1: think that was kind of the hardest the most difficulty i had with the film um and chris now that i reread your review I almost wonder if I thought of that, you know, like subconsciously I was thinking of that Jim Jarmusch comparison. Yeah. But it's really, it was really hard for me to stay engaged. And I don't know if that's why I'm not a huge like Jarmusch fan either. You know, a couple of his things I really like, like I like Dead Man. But that whole like things just sort of happen. (laughs) And and there's really no connective tissue or at least not a lot of one. It really it really made me struggle a little bit to stay engaged. I don't want to sit here and like bag on the film, because I, I did love the look of it. I think the you know, the blocking of the scenes and the directing all looked really good, and it made me want to go watch um, Ashes, the Whitest Color, which I know he put out a couple years ago, which I already was interested in, but you know, if nothing else, this film's like, okay, I, I actually really want to watch that. But this one, it just left me a little cold, I guess. I guess is the best way to put it.
2: Don't ever watch a, a TV... A- a short TV show that Jeremy made uh, called "Fishing with John."
1: <laughs> I think I'll, I'm going to avoid
2: it anyway. It's just a bunch of his friends, and and they like just take trips going fishing, and like just talking on a boat, and that's it. Nothing happens. But I mean, I love it. <laughs> it's like yeah, of I cool. think it's a
1: certain like you know Adam, you were kind of talking about too. You know, you like that laid back feeling, and sometimes, and it, and it could be a mood thing, and that really could have been if I was in that more laid back situation, and. I would have been like oh fantastic great um but for me when I watched it this time I was just like I just can't get engaged like I don't like the main character I just didn't like him I don't know why
0: I don't think suppose he's supposed to be likable um but again I can understand why that would sort of help with the disengagement or help you not become engaged if you don't like the character but yeah I don't think he's supposed to be likable I think he's just supposed to be like this this sort of i suppose maybe loser is a harsh word but he is kind of a loser uh yeah but yeah like i can't really speak too much on the Jarmouche comparison because i've only seen one Jarmouche film i did really like it um it's that oh, i can't remember the, it name Ghost of the name Dog. of no no it's it's one with john laurie and it's a black and white one i'm pretty sure it might have been his first feature film is it um down by law no it's something about a vacation something big so it's like
1: fish. it's not dead man that's the only black and white of one of his
2: i've seen There's, he does a great one called uh coffee and cigarettes but um I, that's I, the, I
0: that's the vignette one isn't it where it's like just yeah. a bunch of guys talking uh yeah. stranger than stranger than paradise sorry that's oh, God, that yeah that's that's really good i really i need to watch more jermuch because i watched that and i really like that and i suppose it has a similar feel it's just a bunch of sort of kind of like just i don't know calling them criminals kind of feels harsh because when you say someone's a criminal, they, it makes you feel like they're my, maybe like antagonistic, but these guys aren't. They're just kind of... And Calling them losers, losers is kind of harsh, too, but they kind of thread that line in they're between criminal deviant, and... A little deviant. Yeah, just a little deviant. And that's what, you know, this reminded me of as well, this sort of, you know, this guy who's just, he just can't get out. He doesn't even really want to get out of the situation that he's in. He's just happy sort of plodding along. Um, well, he
1: just feels so like and I know this is the point but the whole time they the film is telling him straight up that if he doesn't change it's not going to end well like it it's all around him the entire yeah. movie yeah. and then it's like at the end you're like well yeah if you paid attention like one time <laughs> or or had any like inkling to sit there and say you know and I know that's the point and it just but it, to me it's just like he doesn't deserve what happens to him at all cuz you know it doesn't end well for him he doesn't des- it, it's the punishment doesn't fit the crime sort of thing but it's just like it's just frustrating
0: we we have a saying here in ireland i don't know if you guys have ever come across it but it's play stupid games win stupid prizes <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of how how this kind of feels as well you know like you're saying if if he just you know because like his, his friends talk him through this whole way to saying like he, he needs to grow up you know the fact that that he wasn't invited to one of his former best friend's wedding because of his continued deviant behavior, and you know his friend who runs a shop is telling him, you know, you can't keep doing this kind of stuff. His mm-hmm. his family want him to stop. Everyone's kind of saying, every, all the signs are pointing to him saying, get your life together, Shawwu. Yeah, just, and I does think you know he has yeah.
1: such a support, he does have a support system in some sense. Like he, yeah. it, it deals a lot with loneliness, but there are people who generally want him to be okay whether or not they're close to him or in an intimate situation with him, he could probably have that type of relationship if he would just clean himself up a little bit, just, just a tad where people would want to be around him a little bit more.
2: Yeah. But, you know, speaking of relationship before we move on to the romance part, um, there's, so Adam, you mentioned, uh, Vitelloni earlier. Yeah. So last night I finished another Fellini film called Il Bidone, which is like the swindler.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: it's really good. I I think people don't like it as much because the ending feels very self-indulgent and kind of awkward. I think it's not probably it's probably
0: self-indulgent in a Fellini film. You can imagine. <laughs> can
2: I, I can't. <laughs> you can imagine. Um uh but they that is actually way more similar in tone, I think, to Xiao Wu because I totally agree with you that Eva Deloney, like that's the main theme of people that are stuck, right? But I don't think it's quite as Focus on like one character as compared to others. It's sort of you know like this whole community is just kind of stuck. um So Il Bedone deals with a guy, uh that, or focuses on uh, on a guy who's in his late forties and and he's one of the last of the original swindlers or or kind of scam artists con men in the in the city. And his friends are starting to move on and and have careers and stuff. And it's his kind of existential thing that he's dealing with. So in that in that way, I think it's similar. But
0: oh yeah, sounds very similar.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, there's this thing that happens in, in China, and I hope this doesn't get us banned in China because I know we have a lot of listeners there. Um, but there's this thing that happens when you are part of a society where you're told that, you know, now we're doing things different, right? It's like, you know, now like you, there, there's there's multiple examples you can kind of pull up in your everyday life where it's just like, well, we don't do that anymore, and you're expected to just kind of move on and change with society. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, so now they even have, I don't know if y'all have heard about this, but they have a social score. So it's kind of like a credit rating, but it's on you as an individual, the kind of friends you hang out with, you, like the job you have, you actually get a score as like a human. And when you go apply for jobs, like that score follows you.
0: That's insane.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, not to get too political, but like, imagine, you know, so this is sort of like a story, of, it's, it's, a re, it's a fairly rebellious story, actually, told from the perspective of somebody who's kind of rejecting this idea that they have to change just because people around them are telling them they have to change, right? And, and so I think in, in that way, it was, I, I, I love the, the rebelliousness and, you know, sort of the, the bravery of it. Um, you know, I, have you all heard of this artist called Ai Weiwei? Um, anyways, he, he's sort of like, uh, he does big, like $10 million installations around the world kind of things. Um, but he's been in, in imprisoned at least twice and, and sent to like correction camp at least twice. Uh, and he'll just disappear for three months and he'll come back. And after he comes back, he's very, uh, quiet about politics. And then after a few years goes by, he can't help himself, but you know, it's not a culture where you're supposed to be have strong like anti you know sort of government views um so i think the fact that he did this in a subtle way was maybe a, a reason that he was able to kind of get away with some of the the messages in here and my my i think the people in china would have understood what he was saying a little bit more than than we would have
0: ni how to our listeners in china <laughs> friends of the podcast the people of china are the friends of the podcast the government of china not so much um <laughs> I suppose just in terms of the direction, then that was one thing that really jumped out at me. Like I love the look of this film. Like sixteen millimeter film to me just looks gorgeous. I love, Fine. I love the look of sixteen millimeter. It's just the colors, the grain it's just perfect. It's the perfect format. Um, and I thought the direction was really interesting in terms of the very two contrasting styles that the director employs throughout the film. So a lot of the time when when Shawu or the characters are sort of walking around the city or I say city, but walking around the streets and things like that. It's very up close and personal sort of handheld dolly shots kind of very, very, maybe even sort of French new wave or even like Italian, neo realist, just, just very yeah. DIY. But then he just completely switches styles during like interior scenes to like an almost Otsu sort of very still, very static camera barely moves long long shots that go on for like five plus minutes of just characters talking and it was just a really interesting contrast um and i i, I it kept me very much engaged throughout the film because there was so much difference sometimes when you like with an osu film i don't know this is probably sacrilege but sometimes in a osu film i find myself getting a little bored because the camera doesn't really move a whole lot and because the shots are all very samey he that goes he has his like he has his niche and he's good at it but it's all it just it gets a little bit tedious over 90 minutes for me um so the fact that that this director had i don't want to say gall it wasn't like he made the most daring choice ever but you know the fact that he made the choice to be able to employ two very different styles of of camera work both the sort of more diy moving about with the camera and then also knowing when to just stay still and let the scenes flow and let the characters just talk and um and, you know and just come together just to flesh out their their characters yeah i think i think the director did an incredible job like i'm honestly i know one of the guys in our podcast or one of the guys in our discord talked very highly of the director i'd never heard of him i'd never heard of any of his films but i definitely am going to go watch more after seeing this i think he did an incredible job from a direction point of view yeah
2: the only other thing that I was on my mind to talk about was how everything that we've been discussing was displayed as uh, a metaphor through the, the relationship with the women in the film,
0: right? Oh, yeah, I think we should, yeah, we probably could touch on this a little bit more, actually, because obviously, I suppose one of the central plot points of this is the, inverted commas, romance between Shawu mm-hmm. uh, and the, is she a prostitute? The synopsis it, says she's a prostitute,
2: but it certainly feels like that because she lives with like those other women, and and, and like it, it feels like yeah. they're being wanted to be available for men.
0: But like she only she only gets paid to sing karaoke with Xiao Wu. <laughs> that's the only thing we ever see her sort of getting paid to do something is to sing karaoke with him. From well, what I recall.
2: I mean, I think that that's uh, why she's a bit confused in the beginning, right? Because she even kind of asked him a little bit, like, "This is what you want to do." <laughs>
0: Okay, so maybe maybe I missed this. Maybe this is just what Xiaobu wants to do rather than what her actual profession is. Yeah. So this is what oh, okay. like inspired Deuce Bigelow, that whole thing where he's just like...
1: he—he <laughs> he Basically, it's paid to talk to women, and then he gets charged with prostitution.
0: I forgot that Deuce Bigelow... Oh, Deuce Bigelow, <laughs> European gigolo. Is that... Or American... What's well, it?
1: it's just... it. The first one is just... Uh,
0: God,
2: is the title of the first one. Yeah, uh, Oh, so there's two.
0: Okay, right. Yeah, there's. They made <laughs> two of those for some okay,
2: reason.
0: Okay, I forgot it existed. It's now. the trilogy, actually. shao Wu is the first one, and then Just
2: <laughs> Oh, I thought
0: Just Google was the American remake. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, women in this film are not really very prominent, other than that character, though, right? Like, obviously, they have. I suppose if if this is a bordello, then you have the madam who's sort of friendly with with shawu until he starts getting a bit belligerent and then she tells him to to get out um and then obviously you have his mother who's Mm -hmm. you know from what i recall just sort of very quiet it's really his father that that gets on to him when when shawu won't shape up um women aren't as prevalent in this and i don't know if that's a if it's just a cultural thing or just just for the sake of the film there just didn't need to be a lot of women in it because you know i know we shouldn't really compare you know say chinese films to japanese films because it's different culture it's like comparing apples and oranges but you do see female roles a lot more fleshed out in in japanese films and like like osu for example Uh, again if i was just to give another brief example of a, a japanese director that does feature a lot of women this film didn't really feature a lot of women except for that that character the 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 love interest if you'll call her that
2: if if the character of Xiao was anything like the director, then I, I imagine he's not comfortable with Wim. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also like, you know, I think he was known in that community, right? And I think that's something that in in a lot of um, uh, more rural or, or really just in, in China, it, kind of in general, unless until you get into the huge cities, you know, there is a much more of a sense of like a community and kind of being known. Uh, I think maybe the focus was not so much on like any individual person, like it wasn't a, story about him and the police chief or him and the mother or him you know but i think maybe for me it was just a little bit more of like how his kind of role in the community even though he's kind of disgraced a little bit like he's still known and you know they still they still put up with him
0: i suppose it kind of ties into another film we're going to talk about later with sort of um you know a particular character who is known in the community maybe not very well liked in the community and um, mm-hmm. so that will tie into one of our the films that we'll talk about later on i suppose definitely
1: all right. Uh, in this segment, we're going to be talking about The American Friend. Uh, it's about Tom Ripley, who deals in forged art, suggests a picture framer he knows would make a good hitman. Um, just, I guess, a good way to start. Has it, either of you guys seen um, Purple Noon or The Talent of Mr. Ripley? Have you been familiar with the character before this? Not at all.
0: No, unfortunately not. I, I knew of him. I knew *Tom's Mr. Ripley. I know Purple Moon with, um, is, it, is it Delon? Is it Alan Dillon? yes and that yeah i knew of it but no this is my first um exposure to tom ripley
1: i've only seen the matt damon one which i liked actually it was kind of interesting to watch this because that one kind of deals with a young mr ripley and this one's kind of like supposed to be i guess a more seasoned one he's kind of uh went into himself um so we won't make too many comparisons to that especially since you guys haven't seen it but uh what did you guys think
2: well, I started my uh, review this way. Maybe I'll just kind of start this as well. But before we get into the movie, I just kind of like this is a good opportunity to celebrate Patricia Highsmith. She's so great. Like the, the person who wrote the the novel, like the Ripley ad, right, mm-hmm. about her. I, I think I just put this list together. It just takes like 10 seconds here. But she's if you look at the directors that have adapted her work, it's Hitchcock, Wenders, Todd Haynes, Anthony Minghella, uh, Chabrol, Rene Clément. And and then the characters of Tom Ripley specifically have been Alain Delon, Dennis Hopper, Malkovich, Matt Damon. Like, you know, she really has captured the mind of directors and and kind of creative people that want to work in this crime genre, right? Uh, and it's I, I love most of her stories are fantastic, and I think for me this was was no exception. Um, I think the 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 timing of when events happened and how uh, Ripley inserted himself into the story, and and you see. The character who's um, uh, dying of, of some disease, or, or maybe not dying—you're not sure—you um, know—being manipulated by these forces around him uh, to become essentially a hitman, even though he's not wanting to. And then the way that Ripley plays into that story and the timing of it all it just just felt very well crafted, and 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 I loved it.
1: Well, the thing um, that's kind of always interesting about Tom Ripley as a character is, even though damon and hopper play the character completely different one thing i think they both have in common is in a lot of ways they feel unassuming like yeah they both seem quirky and unusual and not quite right but no no one you could feel like could be in control of like these events and i think it really plays into that especially how hopper does such a great job I, I love him and everything but i think he really played this character with the uh uncanny valley sort of feel to it like almost almost feels robotic in the way he acts and almost like a forced human sort of way especially that laugh
0: yeah like i'll go on i'll just start it off saying i I really really loved the film it was incredible i loved the look of it i thought wenders did a great job directing cinematographer robbie muller who to tie into what we were just talking about is actually a cinematographer for a ton of jim jarmusch movies Um, he like 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 the most like some of the most famous jim jarmusch movies robbie Mueller was cinematographer on those too. Um, they they created this film that just looks so cool and the way they craft it with you know the shots and everything like that it's not like a typical actiony crimey movie but it just has so much atmosphere and so much tension in every scene yeah. and yeah, it was really incredible. Dennis Hopper was was great, like perfectly described, like so uncanny. It's just so, it's just odd to watch him. His eyes for me is what got me throughout the film. He just had these eyes as someone who could just like look through your soul. But like the rest of his face was just kind of like aloof. Like he was just, wasn't even really there. It was mm-hmm. just, it's just such an odd performance, but it was so captivating. But for me, it was Bruno Ganz. Just, he was the, he was the star of the show for me. And mm-hmm. uh, he was, like he's obviously one of the greatest you know, European actors to, to have ever worked in film, but, um, yeah, just he gave such a restrained human performance, but really with this really sort of undercutting layer of sadness throughout the whole film, you know, because obviously his character's predicament where he he may or may not have a terminal illness and, you know, he's being manipulated, but yeah, I, I thought the film just in terms of its craft, like its story, I think it's fine. Like, I don't think people will watch this film for its plot um, you know, it's fine, it's, it's but it's just, you know, it's a pretty sort of standard crime plot. But I think how the film is constructed and how the plot is is unfolded is what the sort of really great thing about this is.
2: Yeah, there's. I love the way that Hopper also transitions into Maniac, mm-hmm. like specifically of that scene on the train. Yes, when white-eyed. Yeah, right. And all of a sudden Zimmerman's not going to be able to pull off the, the task. And you see that, Hup, that, um, that Ripley's been watching him the whole time and he comes in and, and finishes the job. Uh, it's the first glimpse you get into that sort of other side of him like you're talking about, Zach, right? Because otherwise it's not there.
0: With this film as well, this is another one kind of like, well, not, not similar to, to Shrewu for most of it, but what really made this film tick as well was the very minimal score. Mm-hmm. The way it was just very sort of, low droning sounds for a lot of it towards the end i felt like as the plot picked up the score did as well but initially during the early stages the score really helped the tension it was it was just low and it was monotonous and it just kind of set you on edge kind of like in a horror film in a way they, mm-hmm. they used music very similarly to in a horror film to sort of build tension and to you know put you on the edge of your seat and to build atmosphere so yeah i, I think i may have read this some maybe i'm maybe i'm confusing about a different film but i remember i thought i read in a review somewhere that a lot of the filmmaking techniques obviously film noir huge influence on this film both sort of obvious and and not obvious which i touched on in my review um the yeah the the film obviously like literally you have two of the powerhouse film noir directors in the film uh-huh. like nicholas ray and sam fuller are both you know both act in the film and um, mm-hmm. so you can't really get as as overt as that um yeah. But also there is some aspects in terms of how it was filmed, you know, with some of the deaths and, you know, the way it builds tension, you know, it's very similar to maybe like a 70s horror film as well. I don't mm-hmm. know if, if any of you got that kind of vibe off it, um, even though it's, it's not a horror film, but it, it did have that vibe a lot of the time as well. That sort of existentialist atmosphere dread that, you, that sort of permeates through the scenes.
1: Yeah, I think it's because Zimmerman feels so out of control, and that's yeah. kind of a big part of '70s horror is the lack of control. Because in a lot of ways, Ripley could come off as a, as a slasher villain, but he just manipulates
2: people to do things instead of doing things himself. Mm-hmm. So, w- what do y'all think about this idea that Zimmerman was actually m- kind of being groomed, like like in the in the way that was best for him? I know that sounds weird because he's talking about being a killer, but I, I just felt that like, you know, the scenes where he was at home, he he seemed like a bit lost to me. And then the scenes where he was on the road, he kind of seemed to come alive a little bit, right? He was awkward at first, but then near the end of the movie, I feel like him and, him and Ripley were almost like buddies at times.
1: I think Ripley, you know, I haven't read any of the books, so I don't know if this is the intention by the author. He just always seems like a person who's so good at reading what people need. And he manipulates them to that. He knows something's missing in this guy's life. And he, you know, from the moment, like, he sees the broken frame and um, when the guy's, like, breaking the frame and the thing and everything else, he's starting to figure out that he can manipulate this guy. And he works towards that. And, you know, what's a better, you know, what's that old expression like uh, bring people in with honey instead of vinegar sort of thing? You know, give them what they want. Don't, you know, never feel like he's forcing his hand. He's doing what he feels like he needs to.
2: Well, and in this case, that includes actually sending him to a doctor in the various cities that he wants to to him to kill somebody in, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly for me, this is kind of where the plot gets a little bit loosey-goosey because the film is either it's either incredibly subtle or maybe I'm just blind. but like, we're not really told or given really any insight as to why. Zimmerman would even go ahead with any of this yeah okay he's promised money for his family to be left behind you know but we're not really told much about his character beforehand or you know like it's it's one thing okay you're 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 dying and you want to make sure your family is gonna be stable and you want money but it's a lot to sort of leap to say okay I'm gonna murder a couple of people to make sure that happens that's a big leap to take from from one to the other and we're not really given any idea or we're not given any inkling as to why Zimmerman would be okay with doing this because he's obviously very inexperienced as we can you know see in in the first murder, the way he just completely completely just keeps sort of, um, he ignores all the advice. Yeah. And he, he just, yeah, he ignores all the advice and he misses so many opportunities to just do it. He kind of delays this until he can't really delay it any further. Um, so he's obviously inexperienced so sometimes in these kind of films you'll maybe see there'll be some kind of like background where the character maybe maybe he has killed before and it was an accident or maybe he's had these urges before in the past and and maybe that's why he's okay to sort of jump to this conclusion that this is how he's going to get the money for his family but we're not really given that inkling with with jonathan he's just he from from what we can tell he's just an everyday guy who makes picture frames who suddenly, when finds out he probably is gonna die, he's like, "Well, I better go kill a few people to make sure my family have money I just think it's it's a big leap and it doesn't really detract in the film because I think the whole film is very sort of loose and I think the film is more about his atmosphere than it is about the actual semantics of the plot because a lot like if you if you were to really sort of bear down and analyze the plot a lot of it's just completely nonsensical um so this is one of the films where sort of like i don't know if you guys have seen the passenger from antonioni um another really really similar film in this in this sense to the vibe it's more about the vibe than the plot because again the plot and the passenger is just it's just completely nonsensical um but it's just more about the atmosphere and it's kind of like this It's kind of like a quiet thriller i'd say you guys if you guys like this you'll like the passenger jack nicholson plays the lead it was one of antonioni's english films or well Mm -hmm. it was made it was american but it was made in english is what i mean um and yeah i think with this film i I don't want to analyze the plot too much because a lot of it's very loose and it's more about the atmosphere than how characters have gotten from a to b
2: The only thing I'll say is that I did like that ambiguity, from the sense that if if you, they keep hinting that this guy has a background that would lead him to become a hitman, but they never talk about it really or go into exactly, it. yeah, yeah. And I think that allows some some fun. Uh, fun's probably not the right word, but like you you can be you can kind of play the edge pretty well and keep people on the edge of their seat pretty well and like not just uncertain and unsure. Uh, and then it even goes a step further when his wife like very quickly adapts to the idea yeah. of what you're doing,
0: right yeah exactly that's another thing like she just literally was like oh you're killing guys uh okay i'll drive the car it's just <laughs> 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 you know it's yeah it, again it's why characters go from a to b is not the most important thing in this film i think it's just taking it all in and enjoying the ride maybe i don't know if this is like an
1: intention of the film but it almost feels like part of it feels almost like an American invasion in Germany sort of thing. Like the idea that Ripley, he, he's very, a uh, very obviously American. You know, the cowboy hat is just going to give it away every time. And I feel like that's on purpose.
0: Well, he calls to, himself the cowboy in Berlin near the start yeah. of the film. He says he's going to be the cowboy in Berlin.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this idea that he's kind of having this parasitic relationship with. Bruno gans character zimmerman who's you know th- these ger- uh this german situation um in a sense and he's just kind of latched onto it to manipulate his own thing and you kind of mentioned globalization in the last film we talked about chris and i can kind of see that here as well in a sense
2: and he's probably smoking Marlboros, right so yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> these are both just anti-cigarette uh, movies
0: yeah like i suppose like at this place this film mainly takes place in berlin like at this point the berlin wall was still up like we assume this takes place in east berlin rather than west mm-hmm. berlin so obviously yeah american like americanization would have been very much in t- you know tied with the berlin culture because obviously it sort of fell on the allied side after everything was split up so yeah for sure you could see that like I said, this sort of symbiotic or parasitic relationship between the American character coming in and getting his claws on this German character to get him to kill very much could be sort of looked at as a wider sort of a metaphor for America's the way America likes to meddle in other countries shit. Um, So, you know, that definitely, and I don't know if that's, like I said, I don't know. I've never read any of the books. I didn't know a whole lot about the series.
1: And this came out in 77, right?
0: Yeah, 77. We're talking
1: about not that long after the pullout in Vietnam either. Mm
0: -hmm. That's true, yeah. Now, the original book that this is based on, is this also set in Germany?
1: I did a little reading about the kind of deal with it. It almost sounds like he took a couple different plots from – he took like two plots from two different books because most of them were taken up by other studios who were going to do stuff with them and probably never did or waited forever to do it um and i know one it said that one of them did not have permission to use it he used plots from it anyway and then mixed it with another book i see
2: so if you want a data point to support what you just said zach that's i think it's a really cool theory actually um if you want a data point the author patricia highsmith was born in texas and ended up dying in switzerland uh, okay so she probably had mo- i mean if we're gonna make some assumptions here she might have had that view that like freaking americans you know coming in and like meddling with the european stuff
0: america likes to meddle in other countries shit as i said before so (laughs) yeah i could definitely see that as being like an overarching sort of metaphor for you know america going in and and manipulating other countries to to do its bidding basically so that's a definitely an excellent point
1: and it was before they uh, did the whole Afghan War with the Soviet Union sort of thing. So it almost is mm. uh, uh, prophes- uh, prophesitic. Is that a word? Uh, we, can, like we can we can make it a word.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, my this is completely completely off on a on a crazy tangent. But just because you mentioned the Afghani War with the Soviets, I always find it funny. Is it in Rambo Three or one of the Rambo films that that, that... Three. Yeah, that follows that war. There's like a dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen, which is Al Qaeda.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, well, the hilarious thing about three, and <laughs> I won't make this tangent too long, but essentially that whole movie was made in, in a sense, for support of you know the Afghans against the Soviets, <laughs> since basically we had forced them into the, their own Vietnam War yeah. to bankrupt them, and <laughs> the bad thing was it was to get support for that. Well. They put the Soviets pulled out like like not long before this movie went into theaters. Like they were filming while they were still there, and by the time it released, no one really cared anymore. <laughs> the situation was over, it was done. The pullout had already started. And uh so it ended up kind of falling on deaf ears altogether.
0: <laughs> and then the the producers said thanks, al Qaeda. You're, <laughs> you're very brave. <laughs> it's a
2: metaphor for the the importance of pulling out.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Collection Corner. So we have a uh, really kind of fun special edition here where we actually were able to get the second interview with uh, a boutique distribution house. Uh, This one is a uh, a passion project. Uh, You'll hear more about it shortly, but uh, from Jonathan, who uh, who works for Kino Lorber and has uh, a passion project he's building out for... Uh, called Fun City Editions, which has a partnership with Vinegar Syndrome uh, for distribution. So anyways, very excited for this interview. And and just quickly before we get into it, I'll kind of tease coming up. We have some interviews in April uh, that are going to be coming out, possibly early May, depending on when they drop. It's going to be, one of them is with a brand new label that doesn't have any releases yet, called Error 4444, which is going to be Asian horror and genre movies. Super excited to interview them. And the other one, which is uh, with Cauldron Films, which is a, a... a passion project from the creators of Diabolic DVD. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about their new releases, Crimes of the Black Cat and Beyond Terror, which hit after three months of production delays because of COVID. So I have to imagine they're excited to finally get those out. But uh, yeah, without further ado, very excited to talk to Jonathan Hertzberg. So, you know, just by way of, um, by introduction, uh, Jonathan Hertzberg, uh, currently the uh, owner and uh, founder of Fun City Editions which is a distribution partner with uh, Vinegar Syndrome uh, but uh, you know a, three current releases in the market on Blu-ray uh, from what I can tell you have a big passion for theatrical Blu-ray and then it seems like also soundtracks and kind of music so I want to dig into that here in a minute mm-hmm. um, your background from what I can tell you're with Kino Lorber for a while uh, as well as in before that Chicago Film Festival did I get that right?
3: Uh, Yeah, I'm still, I'm actually still with, uh, I still, I still am with Kino Lorber, Uh, even though I've got Fun City, I'm still maintaining my, um, my duties at, at, at Kino Lorber where I, I, I run or I cure, I help curate and market uh, the, and sell the Kino Lorber repertory uh, line. It's sort of like a, it's a Kino Lorber sub label. I work on the theatrical sales side. So these are all uh, restorations, re-releases of of older titles, classic titles, lesser known would-be classic titles and uh, Kino Lorber we released those theatrically in the pandemic era we're doing virtual theatrical like anyone else, but normally you know we're playing in Art house theaters around the country, film festivals, uh, museums, and and whatnot, and then those those titles eventually you know end up streaming, and on home video and Kino has obviously a big themselves a big home video uh, component to the company. So I sort of help on the in in my role there I'm working on the theatrical side and and, and launching those classic titles and then they they go on and do their own thing um on the other platforms with fun city it's with fun city i i'm 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 ostensibly doing all of doing the theatrical if i have theatrical rights uh and the digital sales and and the home video so the first few films have been
2: just blu-ray they've just been home video so i guess in fun city as you're as you're kind of getting going here uh you know i i just saw jeremy last night actually but previously i had seen i start counting in alphabet oh, city oh um, wow
3: wow you're so you're you're all caught up well thank you yeah first of all for you know for checking him out for supporting um and, and yeah oh, did you did you enjoy did you enjoy jeremy did you enjoy the other uh, the, the other titles as well or
2: you can be yeah awesome. oh no totally so um Alphabet City is like, just oozes cool, basically, right? It's like mood and atmosphere and cool. Um, It puts you right in that moment. We were talking, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about like film being able to kind of be a timepiece or like a documentary almost in a sense. And like, I feel like Alphabet City is that perfectly. Um, uh, And then I Start Counting was kind of the same thing, but like in a totally different, it didn't have the same sort of, you know, 80s aesthetic, uh, but it, it put in that kind of sleepy English uh you know sort of country almost kind sort of kind of setting.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. The environment the environment in those films is 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 key. And they are they they do they do transport you. They do feel like there's almost as much I, Alphabet Alphabet City I think is, is almost like more overtly stylized and I start counting as is is more subtle about it, but it's kind of like sneaky uh in terms of its production design and utilizing the uh the surrounding you know environs uh but yeah it's a good point that they i, I didn't, and i didn't think about that so much when i was selecting you know the these films but that is pretty and that, that's and that's one of the nice things about you know the upgrade to to uh, hd or better um you know because these are films especially i start counting which has never been available in a decent version up until now as far as we can tell I, i've heard some people say oh there was a vhs release here or there in some part of the world but i've never actually seen a physical proof of it so i don't know if it's the first it may be the first home video release anywhere certainly the first disc release anything that you've seen there's
2: bootlegs around and you know horrible youtube rips uh-huh, uh-huh. or maybe somebody has a film reel in their closet somewhere or something <laughs> someone what Like some collector probably has a film reel in their closet. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, there's a print in England. I know there's a print, um, uh, but it it really hasn't, it really wasn't. And it really wasn't screened in the U S people in the U S really didn't know it even less. It it was more of a cult film in in, um, in England and then here in in,
2: in the U S it was really not even that, um, that's fun though, because Jenny Agutter kind of has a cult following to begin with, and then yeah. even beyond that, there's like this film is like a level deep of like you know kind of like a deep cut for her, <laughs> deep track. For yeah, her.
3: yeah. Well, and that's something that I, you know, that's something that I've sought out to do is really try to find stuff that hasn't been done, uh, that hasn't been released somewhere else, especially because I feel you know again just starting out, like it's a lot easier to to get attention for something, get someone, get some eyes on your, uh, on what you're doing. If it's like, Oh, this is a movie with Jenny Agater um, from when she was right before she did walkabout, it's kind of like this prime starring right. role for her. And, and and it's really kind of unknown. It's been this, it's been, it's been this sort of unknown quantity. So yeah, it's, it, yeah. it draws more attention versus if I release something that's already come out before, you know i feel like then you have to do some you really have to do something different to make it it's got to be a brand new restoration or you have to have some more additional extra features that haven't been before. um but for me it's definitely been exciting to be really putting stuff out so far that really that hasn't been out maybe it's been on dvd maybe not but but
2: not on blu-ray at at the very least well i can tell you as a collector you know just Again, I think I kind of mentioned this when I was reaching out to you, but my background is not in film. I'm in I'm in kind of tech sales, and I just approach film as a hobby, and it's like sort of like my escape. And so the thing that I love, and, and one of the reasons we when we started doing this podcast, which is kind of like a discussion about movies we watch throughout the week, and then we have a selection in the middle, which is which is this uh, kind of collection corner. And the thing that's consistent for us is just this sort of passion for preservation and there's not really i mean of course there's ways we can plug into, like support the local art house or support the local you know in austin there's so many kind of film organizations right? there's ways yeah. to plug into that yeah. but even from a distance there's a way to kind of like you know support the preservation of, of like by buying criterion or by buying aero video then there's like a layer of films that com- companies that kind of come out like below that they're like hey this business model works if you can kind of figure it out right and then you can go find Jeremy and like it's this cool like kind of timepiece of New York you know there's a scene in Jeremy that jumps out uh because it's so fresh when he's waiting for the girlfriend uh but he doesn't want her to kind of know that he's like waiting for her yeah and so sees her leaving the house and he runs around the block and like catches her so it just makes it seem like oh you know coincidence yeah, yeah. and 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 there's that it just feels like such a New York moment like like he he's running around a building and he knows where he's going to catch her on the other side of his building right right yeah yeah
3: yeah no it's a great that's a great moment and that was um you know there there's hand there's a lot of handheld 16 millimeter in there there's there's a lot of you know he's interacting with real people on, on the street they're not they're not background extras they're they're just people that were there um so it is very it does feel very much ground street level. You are there. Uh, not, not a, not a big, uh, yeah, not a, not a big Hollywood production. So that's again, great. yeah, it has. So yeah. 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 I mean, that's what, one of the things, that's one of the ways I tried to uh, kind of market it as this very naturalistic, very, uh, very authentic sort of ha- having an, a sense of immediacy of New York at that time.
2: It's great. Yeah, yeah. What, what, one of the questions I was going to have for you, I think you kind of answered. So when I look at what's coming up next, just based on your website, you have Smile, which is an early Michael Ritchie film, I think right before he makes Bad News Bears, right? That's, that's it, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is amazing. Again, yeah, like yeah. one of those stories of like the film right before he kind of became like Michael Ritchie in a way, right? Um, and then Rancho Deluxe, which is so funny because I, Frank Perry, I feel like, doesn't get enough love. But, you know, through the like, again, we're kind of going circling around this topic of like collecting Mm -hmm. um uh uh, who was it somebody just put out a beautiful three disc like special edition of the swimmer that's right yeah yeah um yeah that's
3: uh um geez i'm blanking right now um no it's okay but it's it's been around it's that 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 set's actually been around and then they've just they've reissued it a few (laughs) a few times but yes it's fully loaded now i think you can get the soundtrack um yeah and then, and then here, you know, a few years later, let's see, the swimmer was 1968. Oh, it's and grind, then... Grindhouse. Swimmer is gr- I was Grindhouse releasing. Perfect. Indeed. There you go.
2: Yeah. Um, f- future friends of the podcast, we hope we're, we're going to reach out to them too, because they they, they they do some crazy, crazy releases. <laughs> but, um, and then about 20 years later is Rancho Deluxe, or maybe, maybe 17 anyways, right around there. Uh, but it's no, cool. It's,
3: it's, it's, a, it's a Rancho Deluxe is uh, 75 and the swimmer was, yeah, 68. So, oh, 10. So it's, yeah. So it's, it's not that it's. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, he he made a bunch of films in between but it's they're yeah, fairly close.
2: Anyways, yeah, so there again kind of like a another film from this guy that's sort of getting some love in the boutique circuit right now. Yeah. And then Walking the Edge, which I actually don't know too much about, but the the tagline this cabbie ain't asking for no tips just <laughs> sounds awesome with Robert Forster in that role.
3: Yeah, yeah, well Walking the Edge is a good example of a of a title that's really been out of circulation for legitimately, you know, it hasn't been streaming. It's the DV, It was released on DVD by Anchor Bay at the very beginning of DVD. Yeah. It's been out of print uh, for a long time. It fetches pretty high prices on the collector's market on eBay. And like I said, it hasn't. So it hasn't been restored. It hasn't been remastered. It hasn't been updated for the Blu-ray HD era. So we're very very excited to be able to be putting that back out. And it is very much like a. In, in some ways, it is kind of like a West Coast vigilante. If you saw the, the, the Bill Lustig film, uh, Vigilante, which was made about a year before Walking the Edge, uh, it's, that also stars Robert Forster, Joe Spinell. They both have scores by Jay Chataway. They're uh-huh. both very kind, they both, and they both have a, have a pretty sleazy, very violent, uh, very violent aesthetic and but but vigilante is in new york and walking the edges in la um, yeah. but they are really i i think they're they may be that forster and spinell went straight from walking the or straight from vigilante to walking the edge but but walking the edge has been harder to see so yeah we're very i am excited about being able to put that one back out there and i and i think it will for those people that like that like vigilante that like the action it's the action films from that era, sort of the sleazier kind of genre stuff that's not horror, then they'll be they'll they'll be in the walking the edge.
2: There, there's these beautiful sort of like um, moments in cinema history, right? Like people talk about like Giallo films, or people talk about like the Italian spaghetti westerns, and and I think that like it's it's the way that you speak about. Uh, the fun city era, like I I, just, I was listening to a couple of interviews when you're when you're talking about like the I think it was a, a mayor or somebody was talk, kind of like saying he wants to ride his bike like it's a fun city to ride his bike in. Yes. And, and the journalists kind of picked up on that and were like, really, it's like super dangerous. um But yeah. the films that were made around that era all had that kind of griminess to them a little bit, right? like. Yeah. The, and, and no,
3: it, yeah. It, it, yeah. Fun city was an ironic, an ironic name for, for New York at the time. It was, it was, yeah, because the mayor it was mayor, John Lindsay, and it was basically like his first day in office and there was a transit strike going on. So he kind of stepped in it basically. And he says, he said, he said, well, I'm riding my bike around. I still think it's a fun city. And you know, they just used that. That was just, that was just weaponized against him in the tabloids. And so, Fun City became the nickname for the New York of that's the late 60s and through this, you know, into the 70s. But it kind of is a forgot. It kind of became like a forgotten term, a forgotten nickname in the last few decades. There's still some businesses in the city that use it. There's a tattoo place in the East Village called Fun City Tattoos. But there, but it was the kind of thing that kind of you would say to people of a certain if they weren't of a certain generation. Um, they wouldn't know what it was, but I, 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 was, I was fascinated with that era. I had, um, I, you know, I had been obsessed with films that were shot there and, and documented it. And I, and I, I, I created a, a series of uh, video like video essays and uh, of uh, compiling footage of films from that time period. And I called it, dirty old new york aka fun city so that's sort of like a pre- that sort of is like like a um, pro it was kind of like a previous step leading to leading to fun city editions i i suppose so so yes it's been a it's it's been like an obsession or a fascination of mine and it's just these are just different ways that it's been manifested um, but but Fun City Editions. If I was only going to focus on New York movies, it would it would be limiting. So I'm not doing that. But uh, you know, it's it it was it was a, it's a name that has you know that I have affinity for. So and you, it's fun to be able to. T- people don't know what it is. I'm still explaining it to to people.
2: Yeah, and I think it's fun to take like the idea behind that right, which is like there was this moment in time that was meaningful for like a generation of people, and then you're going back and like capturing that moment right. Yeah. And I think that's that's true for sure for for at least what I've seen so far uh, from from what what you've been able to put out. Yeah, well, cer-
3: certainly a lot of the films that we've you've seen so far have sort of been in that general time frame of 60s to early 80s. But uh, but it, it it's not I'm not I'm not limiting it's not limited to to that to that era in terms of what we're curating. Uh, I mean, it, it, a lot of it comes down to availability, and I mean. It's sort of a balance between having an identity and, a, and, and and doing something that people can see. You want to have, I think you want to have some brand identity, but but then at the same time, you can't limit yourself too much because there's, you just want, I, I think you just, I want to make sure that I'm open, that I leave myself open for opportunities and, and don't close myself off uh, from you know, from possible possible acquisitions
2: and licenses. I mean, the good news is that you've got like the people like me that have kind of been like spine number one, two, and three, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's like I got to have four and five or whatever, you know. Yeah. Whatever you want. yeah. But then as you as you expand into like like walking the edge, certainly is going to be like an '80s kind of. So like you you get like people that are interested in that too, and then there's new discovery there that happens as well. So it's a good business move, anyways. But yeah. Um, uh, wh- when are you planning on uh, being able to do theatrical again? Is that going to be like late twenty one? We're in the process right now. Theaters, just like in New
3: York City, we you know just uh, we're just able to start opening, not obviously you know at, at a s- small capacity, but hopefully later this year we have a title upcoming uh, which we've announced, um, which is a British film called Radio on, uh, which is a road movie with an amazing soundtrack. Um, David Bowie, uh, Kraftwerk, um, Ian Dury, uh, a lot of uh, Robert Fripp. So it's it's wow. it's it's a really cool. It's it's you know it's it's uh, it's from 1979. So you get people with the soundtrack, and it's shot in black and white. And it's I mean it's very it's it's more of an art film, um, sort of uh, like a, something that probably could be paired with say like Two Lane Blacktop. Okay. Um, okay. But that's a film for, that, that has a little more pedigree to it in terms of, uh, you know, like I said, it's it's more of a it's more of an it's more of an art house film. Yeah. And so that's something that we hope to do some theatrical with and maybe some festival, uh, some kind of festival premiere or something we'll see later later in this year. But again, it's just a, we, we don't know how things are going to go. Um, yeah,
2: no, totally,
3: totally. But but yeah, once one you know put one foot in front of the other. But yeah, there, there's definitely I'm definitely still interested in and 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 committed to uh, to theatrical when you know when it's when it's there when it's available and and you know within you know what makes financial sense. But you can still get certain you can get certain um, press and certain awareness. Um, Certain levels of awareness or certain types of coverage that you, uh, you you don't get when you just put a movie on on um, on disc or when you just when you just put it on digital platforms or something, you know. There's still something there's still something a little old school in the business uh, about like how movies are covered, and so if you do have a theatrical component, and there are and 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 the thing is that there are a lot of theaters now in this in the country. Uh, in New York, especially, we're very lucky and you're in Austin. So, you know, you've got like the Austin Film Society there, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's theaters that are very sympathetic uh, and uh, to uh, repertory cinema who uh, make that a part of their programming. So mm-hmm. um, it is something that people have, especially younger, it's, it's interesting that it's people of our generation and younger who are maybe more interested in the repertory than older uh, the uh, the older folks in our business, because, um, again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, that you 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 see, there's an interest. A lot of times, there's more interest in the past, yes, and things more. There's there's an interest in what you didn't weren't there for. So sometimes it's harder, and I feel the same thing for things that say I was around for, from the '90s. It was harder for me to sort of see them when it got to be like ten or fifteen years after the fact to see the s- historical significance because I was like oh, I was there uh, and I yeah. I don't I don't have the same nostalgia for that stuff but the things that I wasn't around for are more idealized because because of the fact that I wasn't I wasn't there and I wanted that, yeah. and I always wanted to be a little older so I could have been.
2: For it. So, so, I, I, we're, we're pretty similar in age. Like, I'm, the '90s was like kind of when I was in my kind of pre-teens and teens, and 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 then you know that was like, a, and, and I don't, I don't ever go back to like '90s film for like, you yeah, know, that's never where I go. I mean, there's some good stuff there. I, I will, I will say though that that in
3: the last ten years, I, I have come to appreciate um, a lot of that, a lot of the '90s independent films that I was programming when I was in college, and that I was seeing in the theaters even before that. Especially growing up outside of the city, and and there is a, there because there, because it's kind of a lost. It is it is a type of film that's not really made anymore in terms of, in terms of budget level and in terms of um, the production quality, the 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 level of the, the, those sort of. Uh, there, it's kind of like you 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 sort of have now like super micro budget, and then you just have massive. Um, massive comic book level budget uh-huh. and you uh-huh. don't have as many of those types of more medium budget uh, films that were considered independent films, you know, in the, you know, in the nineties, it sort of migrated to television. A lot of that kind of, that kind of storytelling, that those types of, those types of films, um, more earthbound films, more character based stuff is sort of as sort of as I think a lot of that, a lot of that stuff kind of, again went to television and we don't really have the we don't really have those in like a two hour 90 minute to two hour format which i kind of miss i mean yeah. long form television you know has its place but i i still i still prefer seeing a feature film i still yeah. prefer seeing something that is starts and, and is resolved and what have, what have you in
2: you know in a feature film length yeah uh, and that this is really fun. I, I, I'm i really enjoying talking to you. I, I feel like I could easily go another hour, but I know it's getting really super late for you. Uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, uh, just um, uh, kind of maybe to wrap it up, or just kind of in the, you know, just out of respect for your time here, one of the things I've, I'm always interested in is, you said you're a collector, so I, I don't know how open you kind of are with that, but right, are you open to talking about kind of like roughly how many films you have and kind of like, you know, how you think about collecting?
3: Sure. Uh... Honestly, I, I don't I don't actually I don't know how many I how many titles I have, but I can tell you that I have I still have films on I have films I've been collecting since VHS, Laserdisc, uh-huh. DVD, Blu-ray. Uh-huh. I even have some CEDs. I've never actually had a player. Um some, you know, so I some I just collect at this point because I like the packaging and the presentation of them. And there's inspiration there too in terms of you know packaging my stuff now yeah um and uh so i couldn't tell you how many but i would say that um i really try to i i do try to stick more to things that i feel like i really need to have at this point Uh, need is a is is you know uh, you know, that that that'll vary from person to need is probably it's probably not really a need, but I'm just saying between having everything versus I really that's something I would I always want to have in my collection. I try to I try to do that. Otherwise, it gets out of control in terms of, you know, I'm not as much about like I want to have every spine number, but yeah. I from the other side, as as uh, you know, having my own label. Sure, I want I would love to have everyone just uh, all, every, people say yeah i want to have every fun city spine number yeah absolutely
2: um yeah i the the way that i've kind of shifted as as you're talking about kind of shifting the way i've kind of shifted over the years is i think of like you know uh, i mean i I mean this in all sincerity not just because i'm talking with you but like i want to put my dollars towards fun city towards our bellows towards grindhouse releasing towards massacre video like the ones that are like you can tell it's a passion project right i mean i'm sure there's a business side to it but like this is a passion project it's like Two to four releases a year, maybe six releases a year. It's like there's just meticulous design, the packaging and care put into it. You know, Agfa down here in Austin is is a, is a nice one. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. where there it's you, there. There's a level of preservation that's happening and kind of going into those deep cuts in in, in people's filmographies that uh, is is important because a lot of these titles haven't seen releases since VHS. If you know, if that sometimes and so yeah. uh, that that's kind of where I'm I'm biased towards towards putting dollars now and then some of the box sets from, from the big, the big, like kind of massive boutique houses are too tempting to pass up. (laughs) Like they're beautiful.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And and they're, you know, companies like arrow or, or, you know, they, they're doing those beautifully. I'm not at that. I'm not, I don't know. I don't have, uh, I don't have uh, anything that ambitious uh, yet in the slate but uh, at this point i'm just trying to get to maybe one release a month okay um, but yeah i totally respect that it's sort of a um you're 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 seeing the value in the sort of more handcrafted um more curated uh, carefully put together uh package and 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 that's and that's and that's exactly what i'm Uh, what I've sought out to do because there is a lot of competition for people's um, entertainment dollars. And I know that uh, as a collector, um, you know, it's depth, like you, you, like you, it's easy to, it's, if you're choosing between one or two things, it's certainly, it certainly is, it certainly is more persuasive. It can be more persuasive if you say, Oh, this has like, this edition here has these, all these nice contextual extras that, historicize this and and you know kind of uh place this film versus another edition which is
2: pretty bare bones um, yeah totally um well uh just respecting the artisanship that goes into it i guess right kind of in summary you, you know i guess if, if you are open to one more question i am curious from my side just as a buyer yeah yeah vinegar syndrome feels like this extremely well kind of like oiled machine right they have like a ton of releases every month they have like yeah. the archive line they've got then their partner labels right so it's like no, i'm a partner uh, label yeah you what
3: i'm one of their partner labels
2: exactly yeah, yeah. so it's like you and then utopia and then, and then a few others you know there's sort of Act i think is one but anyways you, you have like these kind of partner labels um that feels like a really sweet gig if you're like starting a business to kind of like go on the vinegar syndrome train and be seen as like somebody that they're promoting to the marketplace. It's like, these guys are legit. Is that, has that been good for you? Yes.
3: Yes. I would say absolutely. That's a good question for sure. If I was not, if I, if I wasn't being sort of part, if I wasn't partnered with vinegar syndrome and, and, and uh, you know, it'd be a lot harder for me to get the, num- I, I wouldn't have the number of eyes that I have on me now. Uh, I've benefited from, Vinegar syndromes established, established brand, established brand, you know, loyalty customers. Their also their mode of operation, the way they do things. It's very well. It's like you said. It's all very well thought out. And so I've certainly I I I, I saw the value in that, and I'm experiencing that that um, benefiting from 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 that in a way that I wouldn't if I was on my own. Or perhaps if I was being distributed by another by another company, Um, because uh, because they're uh, yeah, they're very I think they are. I think they've been very savvy about this is a niche market, so uh, definitely they're doing something right. So, um, yeah, I'm doing something a little bit different. It's a little bit the same and a little bit different. So I think it's a good you know, it's been a good a good match, a, a good match.
0: Wonderful. So um, we come to the, the third film that we, uh, that we talk about today, uh, which is uh, Panique from Julien de Vivier, a French film of 1946. I probably didn't like this film as much as you guys did. I know, Chris, you liked it. Um, so I'm going to let you start because, uh, yeah, it's always nice to get a, a good start before I go in and, and tear it up.
2: <laughs> sure, no problem. So the basic premise is after an elderly maid is murdered, Opinions are manipulated, evidence is planted, violence erupts, and panic ensues. It's very dramatic.
1: That is very dramatic. (laughs) Very dramatic.
2: (laughs) Um, You know, I think that there's this huge wave of documentaries that have come out on Netflix, especially, but I'm sure Prime as well. But anyways, they're just kind of available now on streaming, which are around, you know, wrongful uh, convictions. And I, the, one of the reasons I like this movie so much is, well, I'm sure we'll get into the set design, which is just breathtaking. But from a story perspective, one of the reasons I like this so much is it felt very progressive to be telling a story in this way in the 40s of talking about kind of mob mentality and the dangers of uh, making you know, decisions about somebody's innocence or guilt without actually knowing any of the details. Um, and that's, you know, again, like this is something we could probably have a very politicalized, uh, hateful podcast about. So, without getting into all that, I think it's still going on today for sure. Um, you know, regardless of, of kind of the political spectrum you're on, um, it's so easy to take three facts and then jump to this massive conclusion that this guy's a murderer um, before you really know one way or the other. So, I, I just thought that was a, 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 an interesting topic, um, kept me engaged. Uh, the, the main actor, Michel Simon, I like the fact that the way this film was shot, he looked like a hipster from 2020 or 2021. <laughs> like I could have easily seen him having a YouTube channel during COVID, uh, and so it felt very like present and, and current for me, uh, even from the way it was shot and timeless and the, the way that the sets were used and the way and the story itself. So all that I just went into, I, I, yeah, I really, I really thought this was a fantastic movie. I actually just put it in my top 100. I'm, I'm pretty sure it broke the top 20 um, awesome. of my rolling 100. So. Zach, you, know, are what are you
1: saying it's a kind of like an early cancel culture movie.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> kind of.
1: Yeah. What did you think, Zach? I liked it. Um If I, you know, I'll go ahead and kind of get the slight negatives out of the way. I do feel like it kind of runs its plot a little thin, even with its runtime. I feel like it's a story that can be told pretty shortly. Um, You know, it's, it, it's a story that's kind of similar, at least towards the end of, you know, how, the end of king kong or frankenstein you know that it's it's the mob it's the lynch that is worse than what we perceive as the monster itself um i think that's all really interesting i think it's done really well on more a more humanistic level than using you know giant apes and uh reanimated dead corpse but (laughs) um it's that sense of you know, it it's a it's a good little story and I did enjoy it. Um, like I said, I think my biggest issue really was just that I thought it ran a little long for what it was and like the carnival scenes just kind of felt I'm not gonna say unnecessary. I get why they're there, but I'm just like there's a lot of carnival stuff here.
0: <laughs> I, I'm I'm kinda of in the same boat. Um like the plot's cool and it's definitely very, very relevant. With, with cancel culture and things like that maybe this isn't exactly like cancel culture because this guy is already pretty shunned anyway it's not like they've completely flipped the perspective of like a very popular person in the town this they, they were kind of looking for a scapegoat anyway um it does kind of tie into a film that came out a couple of years prior uh from clouseau who did uh le diabolique um uh, le corbeau i don't know if you guys have seen that sort yeah. of similarly set in a, like a french provincial town uh, this one's set like during the occupation uh the, the nazi occupation in france and uh, basically about this this sort of um these sort of letters that go out throughout the town accusing people of doing different things and blackmailing people and things like that and that the whole town just ends of turning on each other and again it's about that sort of dangers of, of mob mentality which this film is obviously very heavily leans on um especially towards the end, the way they sort of manipulate the whole village into thinking Michel Simon is this bad guy when he's actually this, you know, this sort of very quiet, nice, friendly gentleman. Just because he's a little bit of an oddball, everyone is instantly suspicious. Like one scene that, that completely, you know, took me, you know, or sort of um, shocked me was near the, near the end where the the guy in the butcher shop is asking the little girl Uh, has he ever taken you up to his his room and i i for like a film this is 1946 and that was i was shocked you know and when that scene happened i thought like wow to be to be sort of insinuating this guy like that they they think this guy might even be a pedophile is was just completely completely shocking um but yeah i think that i think the plot overall is kind of a little bit thin um i i joked about this in my review and, and when i first watched it um, I was surprised because it's so noirish. I was surprised it was never like remade in America. Like I can picture this film perfectly directed by Fritz Lang and then starring uh, Joan Bennett and Dan Dury as the two sort of bad guys, and then poor Edward G. Robinson as as the Michelle Simon character. I could perfectly picture that happening. And I was so surprised that it never happened because I think it just it would have suited them all down to the ground because it's such a noirish. Um, such a, such a noirish um, plot, how it all happens, the little like even like little things like the femme fatale aspect, and you know just even the little things. It's it's a very film noir kind of film, but yeah, I think I think the plot is just kind of spread a little bit a little bit thin. But I suppose we'll talk about the the main thing that that this film is is great at, and that's the set design. Um, I that stunt
1: work was also really good. I just want to note before I forget, like the end.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. For when that there's...
1: time period, I was like, "Oh, that seems like actually like a difficult stunt to do."
0: Yeah, like uh, one thing we cannot knock this film is is its production, um, for sure. Like, I couldn't really find. I I tried looking into this. I don't know if you guys were able to find that much, but in terms of how much of the set was like built for the film, mm. because it's so essentially nice it's essentially a town that they've built, and yeah. you know, really incredible sets and the way that sort of uh, De Vivier sort of explores the sets. Is excellent like like the way he sort of shoots in the window of the of the femme fatale and it pretty much mirrors how michelle simon's character who lives in the apartment across the road sort of looks through his window in at hers yeah. it, the camera sort of stalks just like he does um yeah the production of this film cannot be knocked it, it was kind of i had a similar feeling with the previous De Vivier film that i'd watched pepe lamoco which again the plot isn't is not it's not great it's very thin uh, takes a lot of turns that just sort of you know kind of just come out of nowhere um but it get the the set design in that film to recreate a sort of uh, moroc or algerian kasbah is is excellent as well so de vivier has a great eye for production design and he makes his films look really great maybe he could have just done with i see he co-wrote the screenplay on this as well maybe it's his writing that sort of brings the film down
2: so Michel Gondry and Jean-Pierre Jeunet are probably two other French directors that are, would fall under this category, right? Of where the story is there to really service their creative kind of visual vision. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's maybe they've even were inspired by Duvivier because like this, I really felt like I was, this could have easily been a Michel Gondry movie. Like just the fact that like there was really no special effects, but there was an altered reality by the way, like the angles of the building and the way the camera was shot. And like, you know, I don't know exactly how he did it, but I just, I just felt like they were minute, they created miniatures and then just somehow blew them up, yeah. you know? And I felt like it was, it created a really cool kind of feeling and, and uh, uh, a timelessness to the movie because it was obviously not any specific town. It kind of took you out of that reality and it made it uh, fun and playful, which, yeah, again, I think those other two guys do as well
0: yeah, I think I suppose it's probably his way of saying that this could be any town, this could happen in any, cause obviously I don't think the town yeah. is ever even named or anything like that. So I, I think, think it's that. giving it this sense of this could be happening anywhere. Kind of like the way Lynch does that as well with his small towns with the CD, you know, the way like in, in a lot of Lynch projects, it's all about the seemingly idyllic small town with the CD underbelly. Um, obviously this isn't as weird as a david lynch film but sort of a similar idea of this obviously he talks about small town america the Mm -hmm. way the same way that sort of De vivier in this film is talking about small town france or village france or you know that in the seemingly idyllic locations yes there's still crime yes there's still negative things happening people can get murdered people can spread rumors and it can be the downfall of other people so um as much as this is maybe a, a sort of reflection on human nature and, you know, how, you know, greed or the sort of, I can't really describe the emotion of why they would go after this character specifically, but, you know, the fact that they were, the two, the, the, the femme fatale and, and her boyfriend were so so strongly wanting to get away with this murder that they would just pin it on this sort of just nice guy. um it's, Instead of being about human nature, it's kind of more about the idea that small towns can have this sort of negative sort of undercurrent just as much as a city can.
1: I, um, and this is always the possibility of reading too much into it, but I always feel like when you're dealing with movies in Europe from specifically Europe, but in the U S too, about like in the 1940, mid 1940s to mid 1950s, you kind of got to bring world war two into it a little bit to the sense that, you know, I don't want to sit there and say it represents anti-semitism uh, or that you know france of course was under third right control for uh, world war ii and then you have this guy who based on his looks is decided that he's guilty because you know he's a big bear of a guy and almost gives us like animalistic quality to him mm-hmm. similar to how people were convinced of how you know how nazis were able to get control of that and like i said Possibly could be reading too much into it, but that's kind of how I felt with the context of the year and the location and all that other stuff.
0: No, I, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, like even like France, especially I think the idea of trust was it was a huge issue because obviously France, a lot of France during World War Two was governed by French people known as Vichy France. You know, mm-hmm. they were German installed. They were loyal to the Nazis, but they were French. So they essentially turned on, you know, other French people, you know, to sort of instill this Nazi rule. So this idea of trust and that your neighbor could be, you know, someone who is not trustworthy and will sort of turn their back on you or will attack you and your, and your ideas then. And it's explored heavily in the Corbeau as well, which is why I keep sort of referring back to that film, especially the fact that I was shot and filmed during Nazi occupation Um. It would have been a massive thing in France because of that whole Vichy thing where like after world war two ended, if, if you were found that you were, you know, had been played any part in the Nazis succeeding. So if you were not in like the resistance, if you were played any part in Vichy France, you were shunned, you were thrown out, you were executed. They, they didn't want anything to do with you. So this similar idea of being suspicious of your neighbor. And I suppose it's kind of like, you'll see a lot of this stuff in fifties, american films the whole red scare it's right. just this idea of trust of your neighbor and, and how being you know seeing someone who's potentially untrustworthy can create this this problem in the sort of wider society that they'll go after you and um that they'll try and hurt you basically
2: that's interesting because that the, with the mccarthyism era in uh, in the u.s when was that when were when were all the directors getting uh, That's blacklisted?
1: The fifties, yeah, yeah, fifties and the early sixties.
2: Mm. That was all just based on word of mouth, right? Like, oh, this person's yeah, a, like Trumbo
1: and all that, and having to deal with hmm. being blacklisted and going under fake names,
0: yeah. Or, yeah, or just going and making films in in Europe, like Dassin had to do, and like obviously he had to go to France and mm. um, Joseph Losey. You know he had to go to the uk and he made films in france or or he just ended up like charlie chaplin and just never make a film again so um until like didn't he make his last film i think in like the 60s or the 70s or something wow. maybe I'm misremembering um but yeah this definitely ties in with that idea of suspicion um and just that sort of post-world war ii paranoia that was just rife all around the world really uh, for different reasons, obviously in France it's because literally your own neighbor could have turned against you during World War II. And obviously in America, it's about the whole sort of pure fear of, of communism. Mm. So basically what we're saying is Panique and The Blob are interchangeable films. They're, you can, <laughs> you can watch either and get the same idea from them.
2: Yeah, I don't really, I can't really think of too much else to say. I mean, you know, this is a, a movie that I really enjoyed, but it is fairly straightforward in its execution. Um did anyone else feel like the ending of this was like Elevator to the Gallows? Ooh, interesting.
1: Like um, as soon as he like picks up that picture, I was like, it, it's the first thing I
0: thought about. <laughs> I oh was like, yeah, because oh, the was truth the, is in the picture. Yeah, because that was the the sort of uh the red handprint, wasn't it? Um that similar in Elevator to the Gallows, he he you know, shows the picture that shows um uh Jean Moreau in the you know, in, in the same area. Oh. Yeah, no, now that you've said that, yeah, for for sure I can see that connection there. I think this one is kind of left a bit more open-ended, I suppose, because, you know, they're sort of on the, the carnival ride and we don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to try and escape? Is he going to accept his fate? We don't really know. Mm. But um, yeah, that, that that photo as as a sort of proof of the crime is, is an interesting um, connection. I, did, I didn't make that connection myself.
2: I guess if we're talking briefly about the ending, so spoiler alert here a little bit, but I think I liked that the ending was open because it kind of left with the feeling of, you don't even know for sure that the police are going to prosecute this guy, right? Even though yeah, he's- Yeah,
1: because they would look, look bad on them.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, because the, the, the town don't even really trust the police. You know, when when they're deciding that Michelle Simon is the bad guy, I think someone says, oh, let's call the police, and they're like, no, nah, let's just take it into our own hands. So- yeah. Uh, yeah maybe maybe the police will just let this one go as well maybe they don't want to open up that kind of worms it's in it it leaves the film at an ambiguous note which i have no problem with. i I don't mind an ambiguous ending um as long as there's pieces there's enough pieces for you to try and put it together yourself a cliffhanger ending and an ambiguous ending are are different stories but um yeah a film like this where it leaves little morsels or, or little sort of jigsaw pieces that gives you enough to maybe put something together afterwards whether you think the police will, you know, they have the picture, they have the proof, they're waiting for him to get off the carnival ride, let's just go get him. Or the police are not are already not trusted enough to do their job. Maybe they'll just say, let's just let's just say he was the killer and move on.
2: Yeah, more important to be in line with the public perception than to find the actual criminal who did it, right?
0: Yeah, and again, that's another... Uh, I think this film, like now that we've talked about it, maybe it's grown on me a little bit more it's it's still a film that has has relevance today both in terms of its mob mentality cancel culture if you will sort of trust of law enforcement mm-hmm. uh, trust of your neighbor even cuz i suppose even now with with anti maskers and anti vaxxers and stuff you know your own your own aunt could go on a rant on facebook about how vaccines are going to kill children so there's always it's another you know, one of those teams that is still just as relevant today. Really. You don't know what your neighbors sort of believe in and where their allegiances lie. So if anything you can take from this film is that even though it was made, you know, best part of sort of 70 years ago or so. um, Yeah. It's teams are just as relevant today as they, as they were then. Yeah. So as usual, we're just going to wrap up with uh, any other business where we'll just talk about something we watched recently that we liked. doesn't have to be criterion related. doesn't have to be good. just something that we want to give a shout out to. Um, Zach, do you want to talk about something briefly that you've seen that you liked?
1: Well, I've been on a uh, Snyder kick, so I guess I will <laughs> talk about that here since I don't have much else besides what we've already talked about. Um, and I'm debating if I should talk more about Sucker Punch or talk more about his Justice League that just released. Um, I, I guess I'll sort of touch on both. First, Snucker, uh, Sucker Punch. Uh, how, you know, it's one of those films that was highly hated when it came out. You know, I just recently saw it. It's one that was on the back burner for me. I kind of encourage people to go back and maybe give it a second chance because I think it was one of those films that was really misread, and that could be because of Snyder's fault. But I think it's worth a second look. Uh, the other one is his Justice League, which obviously had a four-year campaign to get it released. And in a sense of whether you're a fan or not, if you just like to keep up with modern movies and how studio systems work, I, I really recommend people at least check it out, even if they're not Snyder fans, to at least give it a chance to, because I think it's important. I think it's important in the in the history of where we're at currently. I think it's something that could possibly, I'm not going to say it is going to set a precedent, but it has that potential to. And I think it really says a lot too for what, Audiences are telling studios because we've had years of studios are allowed to cut films all to pieces and we just accept it and say, well, we'll get a director's cut like Blade Runner, you know, 25 years later where we can see the actual vision. And now it's a demand that no, the director's vision should be seen regardless and shouldn't be up to studios to decide what should be seen and what should not. Be interesting to see how that, you know, if that echoes anywhere into the studio system as the years go on. But I think it's important. That's that's all I'm really going to say. I'm not really going to talk about the film itself because I think you're kind of going to know what you, you're getting into with a Zack Snyder film.
2: I mean, tied to that preservation discussion, even if it's just a matter of choice, right? Giving people an option if they want to see the theatrical cut or the director's cut.
0: For me... Oh, that's...
1: absolutely. And it's, um, it, it's one of those uh, deals as well, you know, that... <laughs> As much as I hate like the idea that all like two or three companies own all these movies, you know, at and bought out Time Warner. But if it wasn't for AT&T buying out Time Warner, we would have never seen this. So you know, I gotta give credit where credit's due. at and saw that people were interested and gave 70 million dollars to make sure it happens. Um, when Warner Brothers wanted this thing buried as far as possible.
0: The only thing that makes me pessimistic about this idea of hashtag release a Snyder Cut kind of things is I'm wondering that if the original was any way good. No, the original's terrible. The original Justice League is a bad, bad movie. If it was any way good, I don't think there would have been calls for it. So for me, I think maybe I'm just completely misreading this and maybe I'm a little bit biased because I'm an MCU fanboy. but I think a lot of the reason why people were wanting the Snyder cut was a need for vindication that the justice league can be good. And -hmm. I think if Joss Whedon's vision was good or at least better than what it was, I don't think there would have been calls for this Snyder cut. I think rather than people wanting the director's original vision, it's, this was terrible, please. Zack Snyder's version can't be worse. Let's get this out and hopes that we can vindicate ourselves and we can try and say, Oh, that we're better than Marvel. And that's the way it kind of sat with me. And I used to work for um, for Vero. I don't know if you're aware, the social media company yeah. is one that Zack Snyder is heavily involved in. I used to work for them. So I have seen a lot of this stuff when it first started rolling out about three or four years ago when people were demanding the Snyder cut. I was right in there deep seeing these posts on Vero about it. So um, I know about this whole sort of mob mentality and these sort of Snyder fanboys and the DC fanboys. And a lot of it is not about whether or not you know they they want Zack Snyder's original vision it's more that they want something good so that they can say haha we're better than you Marvel
1: and I, I guess you know I'm not as much into that like I, I obviously he brings a lot of passion I don't I try to stay away from any fandoms it doesn't matter if it's Star Wars or anything I just find them all pretty toxic and not oh, beneficial yeah. in a lot of ways um, so I just try to kind of separate myself from that um, I, I guess from the circles I'm in it's you know, really, I didn't care if the movie was any better. And this is, I guess, just a personal thing for me. It could have been worse. It could have been the worst superhero movie I've ever seen. But I still think it should have came out. You know, the idea that a studio can butcher a film this horribly and get away with it, I think is just a bad idea. I think think that itself sets a bad precedent. The idea that, you know, the idea of being commercialized to the idea of we don't care about vision we care about, you know, you know, it's, there was this almost like the separation between Snyder and WB WB wanted to compete with Marvel and Snyder was always very open that he had no interest in competing with Marvel. Mm -hmm. His interest was making his own thing and doing that. And I think that that that's why that relationship got so strained is because for better or worse, Snyder made the movies he wanted to make and WB just got tired of it and just, decided they were going to pull the rug and say you know what we're going to commercialize to you we're going to franchise this and doesn't matter and i just think it's it's bad for the genre itself the idea of superhero movies they need to be marvelized and this isn't a knock on marvel uh, not at all uh, what marvel's done is a great and it's an accomplishment but it's not the only way to do things and i think that's the importance of this sort of thing even like i said i don't know if i'm sure there is a dc versus marvel angle to this there always has been but from my personal opinion
2: that really didn't factor into this then why do you have a superman tattoo on your cheek
1: do i did <laughs> it not come on
2: <laughs> uh, yeah you know i know where uh you you brought up sucker punch as well uh when you were going i read your review on it i thought it was really well written uh and i think the, you, you had a quote from jenna malone Uh, And I grew up with, we're we're very similar in age. I think she may be a year or two younger, but we're very similar in age. And so she was an early crush of mine. Uh, Okay. uh, And so I I brought back some good memories, but I I do, it's interesting because there's that tension between over-sexualizing young girls in Hollywood, right? And then in this movie, which, I mean, does that, but for the actresses themselves saying like, it was super empowering and it it was cool to see these, Women that had so many constraints around them being in the in the hospital and all this. But, in, you know, they were able to escape into this fantasy where they were, like, these assassins and, and powerful and kind of superheroes in a way. Um, I thought that was an interesting perspective. I'm glad you included her uh, quote on that, just to, just to see what she thought.
1: Yeah, I always felt that was more of a commentary on geek culture itself. You know, and it's funny, coming from Snyder, who's been a huge fan of a huge part of geek culture, and he's obviously, you know, deep into it. But, you know, when I was watching the movie and, you know, that's stuff I've heard for years, I never felt like it was supposed to over-sexualize them and just make them, you know, something to stare at. Now, obviously, how successful he is is going to be a person to person, but I personally never felt that.
0: Cool. I suppose to talk about sort of one sort of feminist angle to another, uh, the film I'm going to talk about, well, I suppose production-wise, it couldn't be farther from a, from a Warner Brothers action flick, it's a a 1952 uh-huh. film <laughs> from Finland, which oh. is a cinematic landscape I had never explored. Um, it's it was it was a really beautiful film. It's called The White Reindeer. Um, I got the release from uh, from Eureka here in Region B. Uh, really, really nice uh, Blu-ray set. This really incredible um, sort of intimate, sort of um sort of supernatural kind of folk horror. Uh, I, t- I spoke about Kurnako a few weeks back, um, and this this was this was kind of similar, just in terms of its atmosphere and its its sort of uh, otherworldliness to it. So it's actually it was completely set and filmed in Lapland, which is a region like the very sort of norths of Finland, really sort of tundra, barren, snowy era. Um, the sort of culture there is very similar to like Eskimo culture uh, in Canada. So. Um, really really interesting a a sort of part of the world i'd never seen depicted in film before and and that itself was interesting the the plot was fantastic though um it's basically about this this young woman she marries uh, a hunter um but she becomes very very lonely because um the hunter is always away on hunting trips and things like that so she's basically just sitting in the house alone for long periods of time um and it's very much about um this sort of sort of sexual frustration and wanting to be loved and, and wanting to feel free and she eventually goes to a shaman who tells her about this ritual about how she can basically make herself alluring to men um and the ritual involves her going to this um this sort of um they call it the stone gods basically the statue they have in the middle of nowhere and she sacrifices this white reindeer fawn in order to go ahead with the ritual but the shaman, like like all of these kind of folky horror films, the shaman didn't tell her the full story, and she basically becomes this sort of vampiric shapeshifter that becomes a white reindeer and and lures men out to the wilderness and kills them. And um, so it's completely bonkers film, but it's just so beautiful to look at. The cinematography um, was done by the director as well, this guy called Eric Blomberg, um, and he just he just made this incredible film and in the absolute middle of nowhere. In, in the north of Finland. Um, it's beautiful looking. The plot is really, really interesting. It's a very short film. I think it was only about 70-something minutes long. So it definitely does not overstay its welcome at any point. And it just has this really terrific atmosphere, um, very similar to something like Kuroneko or Ani Baba, where, you know, the super... It's not really... I wouldn't really call it like a horror, horror film. It's even very much in line with something like, even like, like, uh, like The Witch... Like the Robert Eggers films, I'd I'd very much sort of put it in 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 the same kind of horror category as that, the sort of slow atmospheric kind of horror film where it doesn't really rely on scares, just more so about just the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the White Reindeer. I don't know if there's a region A release. I should have looked it up, but I didn't, so I apologize. But you guys are about region free anyway. So uh, Eureka have a a region B of it, but I I'd really recommend it, especially. Um, if you like those kind of slower, more atmospheric horror films, um, definitely, definitely a, a recommend for that.
2: Sounds really good. My only my biggest question is,
0: does Santa Claus make an appearance? <laughs> he does not. Unfortunately, I was disappointed as well. Um, yeah, but, that's, a, that's his hometown. Plenty of reindeer. Yeah, Lapland is his, is his hometown. Plenty of reindeer. Um, none of them fly and none of them have red noses. But there's plenty of reindeer and plenty of sleighs in the film. But uh, no, no Santa, unfortunately.
2: Maybe the movie was made by a disgruntled elf who was trying to create a different opinion of the Lapland uh, culture, who was so
0: tired of only being seen as a Santa culture. I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Counterculture in a way of Lapland, yeah.
1: (laughs) We do not have a Region A of that. Oh, Um, oh, not Region A, but we don't have a U.S. release. Um, And I don't know if the other one, I'm trying to look it up, if it's if the Masters of Cinema one is.
0: I can tell you right funny. now if it's region free, if you give me two seconds. It says oh. it's region locked on Blu-ray. Okay, well I'm not going to bother tear apart my shelf to try yeah. and get it out, because I stack my stuff rather than put them side by side. So, um, But yeah, well look, you guys are region free, and if anyone else is listening, is region free, or if they're like me in region B, uh, Eureka's release of the White Reindeer, I think I picked it up for like 12, 12 quid on Amazon, so it's not going to set you back a whole lot, and it's yeah, it's just a really cool, interesting little film from a, par- from a, piece, of, from a you know, piece of the world where you don't get a lot of cinema from. Obviously, you get a lot of film from Sweden, but you don't really see a lot from Finland. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting even for that point alone, just seeing a part of the world that you wouldn't normally see expressed in, in the cinematic language.
2: Um, from the snowy tundra of Lapland to the, the, the grimy uh, 80s synth-filled streets of the 80s in the U.S., <laughs> Uh, I'll I'll take us in a slightly different direction for mine. So I just finished. Um, Vinegar Syndrome has a, a a line that they put out called their archive line. So far, there's twelve releases. Some of the releases have multiple films, so it winds up being about fifteen films total. Uh, and it's the the kind for anybody that doesn't know the theme of uh, Vinegar Syndrome archive is VHS classics. Um, so it's it's the kind of things you know they actually. They actually run a the Vinegar Syndrome guys actually run a video store in Connecticut, uh, and so they have this backlog of just VHS stuff that's sitting there for for years. And I know Zach on the other podcast, uh, you do you know, your your co-host is a uh, huge VHS collector, mm-hmm. so he's probably familiar with some of these titles. But for the most part, I haven't I hadn't heard of any of these, um, and and they're just you know kind of forgotten classics that have never had sometimes even a DVD release, but, but the people at vinegar syndrome like, so, uh, I'm going to be putting together, uh, I don't think I can do a ranking piece yet because they're going to, they're still putting them out. Like they're not done, but I'll put a, um, I'll put together a, at least a kind of brief overview of all of them for the site. But, you know, I think the top five for me, action USA just because it's one of my favorite movies anyways. Uh, Uh, there's another one called savage dawn which is imagine mad max made for about a hundred dollars so yeah and and in a town where there's no real consequence because they don't have anything of value to fight for it's just people that are fighting for their town because it's their town
0: that's the one with um the guy henrik lance henrickson yeah Yeah. Uh, i remember you did a review on it for the site a while ago yeah lance henrickson it was great i would say it's my
2: favorite one but then action usa is in the collection so you can't be (laughs) it um spellcaster which is like imagine if mtv were to make a promotional horror film that was just kind of about how cool it is to be a vj um i don't really know how else to describe that it's it's a weird idea for a film i can't believe it got off the ground and i understand why this is the first release but it was it was good it was well done um and then la wars which is kind of like godfathers meets like I mean, The Godfather, not Godfathers. I don't know what Godfathers is. The Godfather, uh, again, made for about $100 um, and and sort of poorly written. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then number five would be Savage Harbor, which I'm putting up there just because I laugh so hard at. So Sylvester Stallone, brother Frank, and um, Robert Mitchum's brother Chris star in this movie about two dock workers that come in from time to time and and get try to find love and and get involved in some criminal activity that unintentionally and have to fight their way out um but the funny thing is that frank stallone on the special features said when the movie was finished he took it over to his brother's house you know slide and they sat there and they said they both were laughing and like tears were streaming down their face their bellies hurt and afterwards sylvester stallone was like this is the worst movie ever made <laughs> <laughs> and so for that story alone i I'll, I'll rank it high and i think it's a fun one to watch nice
0: that wraps up this week's episode of they live by film if you want to read more of our thoughts visit theylivebyfilm.com and you can also follow our letterboxd reddit and instagram accounts from the links in the description for now take care